When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing? Hello, David. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm all right. All right. I've just listened to your interview with Chris Evert. Blimey, heck. <laughs> you had an hour with the 18-time Grand Slam champion Chris Evert. How good's that? It was pretty cool. Yeah. An hour-long therapy session <laughs> for her and for me. I got lost in it. I've got, I mean, I've, I've just listened to it all over again and I mean I'd already listened to it once about a month ago but and it's something we've wanted to do for such a long time to to just properly focus on Chris Everett's career because I don't feel in the years that I've covered the sport that we've that we and in fact the media and the tennis world properly understands what this woman achieved in the sport what she gave to the sport what she's meant to people within the sport. It feels, I don't want to say she's been a forgotten champion because she hasn't, but but it do, certainly doesn't feel as though she's been sufficiently at the forefront of our minds. So Catherine, we were happy enough that Catherine got the interview. Matt's here. Hello, Matt. Matt has gone into the archives and, and, and just produced some some preparation for that interview which is why we're doing this today matt's research for Catherine's interview was so incredible <laughs> that we thought we have to find a way to get this out there and, and it's just been such a wonderful experience to learn about her career and and her life really not only are we back on the podcast david having to replace chris evert but we're having to replace chris evert talking about chris evert i mean <laughs> talk about talk about a tough challenge today that we've got ahead of us but you know my notes are there so. <laughs> <laughs> your, your notes are worth just it. read them out matt <laughs> Page by page. They have got hyperlinks in, folks. When I saw the hyperlinked uh, contents page for those notes, I knew we were in for a a treat. They're 19 pages long, uh, Matt's notes on Chris Everett's career and and stats. There's a stats page alone, which is is just mind-boggling and which, you know... in the interview that, that we heard a few days ago, we we hear you relate some of those stats to her, Catherine, and even even some of them she isn't aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think stat. I mean, I haven't had a nineteen-page um, document for every great tennis player in history from Matt. Yeah, pull your finger out, Matt. <laughs> uh, but I think stats-wise, Chris Evert probably has the the best stats of any tennis legend the best sort of most interesting varied list of incredible feats in stats form and yeah you alluded to it earlier it's it 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 does feel kind of weird to talk about or think about a an 18 time grand slam champion that's still very much in all our consciousness is because you know she's she she yeah she works with me on Eurosport she she's uh, an ever present on the ESPN team uh, on US TV coverage it's strange to think of somebody like that as potentially underappreciated but when I looked through this 19 page document I thought we're not talking about Chris Everett enough do you know do you know I, I just to say I think one of the reasons for that as well 
though, is because she isn't somebody who talks about herself. She doesn't talk about her own achievements in her commentary or as some of the commentators do. There's that line she gives you, Catherine, where she asks you, does it sound conceited that I'm comparing myself in any way to Novak Djokovic? And you're you're immediately immediate response is no no it doesn't it would if i did but it, but you're chris Everett. and and i think that sometimes it does go a little bit unacknowledged just how great she was yeah and i was i was reflecting on that question of why it goes unacknowledged like why is chris ever underappreciated because i think if you were living through the chris ever era you would know why she was so important because it strikes me that she was someone that was marketed in tennis for maybe one of the first times she was someone who brought tennis into the mainstream she got people watching she bridged that gap between Billie Jean King who um, well in Chris Abbott's own words made them celebrities made them famous got them recognition and Martina Navratilova, who made people realise how good these women were athletically. And she was both those those things, Chris Everett. And she's also got a legacy because she brought in the two-handed backhand. She's got an academy. So she's got all these reasons why we should be talking about her, but I can't really put my finger on why we've not talked about her quite so much. You know, those things point to the fact that we should be talking about her, and those are the reasons we are now. But why has it been on for a few years where she has been under the radar I'm not sure I know the answer yeah if you compare her to to Martina say and that's obviously an extremely obvious comparison to bring I feel like we talk about Martina a lot more and maybe that's because Martina is extremely political she keeps herself in our in our consciousness with her with her political views but I think I mean this all comes into the whole misunderstanding I think of Chris Everett as a person which we'll I'm sure talk about in depth but I think Chris Everett in her own quiet way is quite political she's certainly unafraid Um, she's perhaps a bit more cautious about it and a bit less brazen about it than Martina but she's not afraid to to be herself and be political I remember a couple of years ago I was working with uh, Five Live at, at Wimbledon. Have I already told this story on the pod? Not to my knowledge. Uh, I was working with Five Live. If everyone's tuned out, I apologise. Well, you're not hearing me apologise. I Anyway, <laughs> God, all, we're seven minutes in and I'm already potentially raking through uh, old material. Oh, well. It's going to be good. Aspects. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I was working with Five Live at Wimbledon and uh, it was Middle Sunday. And yet again, uh, the order of play was released and it was two men's matches and one women's on centre court. And actually the gender balance across the show courts was was even worse than it had been in in, in previous years. It, it's never once been been balanced or, or in women's favour. But broadly, the trend was slight improvement over the years, but this felt like a big step back and... You know, the the lazy excuse of market forces and golden era of men's tennis, et cetera, et cetera, was trotted out. And I was really I was really upset by it. I was really angered by it. I was really upset by how how so many people were lazily accepting that market forces argument. I remember having a discussion with you about it, David, and he said, well, unfortunately, to to get noticed for that upset to be noticed, somebody of note has got to say it. And I just worked with Chris Everett for the first time at, at the French Open a couple of weeks before. And I had, I had learned what a, a cool, gnarly, fearless lady she is and, and, a, and a great feminist in my view as well. And you said, go and try and find Chris Everett. Great. Yeah. Thanks, David. So <laughs> off I went. And uh, <laughs> I... I loitered outside the ESPN makeup room for I think about an hour and a half. It wasn't cool. <laughs> it wasn't hugely dignified. And eventually she came out and she greeted me warmly and I said, I'm going to cut to the chase here. Um, I don't think this is okay. I suspect you don't think it's okay either. Would you be prepared to say that for me? And she she said, no, I don't think it's okay. 
bits, but she she sort of rolled her eyes and said, but what's new? You know, this doesn't surprise me. What's new? And if I say something about it, it'll most likely go big or will be taken out of contest. She basically didn't didn't trust it to to be taken the right way or reported responsibly. And I was I was going to normal Catherine Whitaker behaviour would have been to say thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure waiting an hour and a half for this conversation. Um, I I understand your position. Have a great day. And I stopped myself for a moment. I had a rare, a rare moment of channeling my inner David Law. <laughs> I, took a, I took a deep breath and I said, I know this isn't surprising, but nothing's ever going to, to change unless you know, we make it change. And then I thought, why are you telling Chris Evert this? She knows this. Shut up, Catherine. Uh, and I said, look, I, I, I will happily shout about this all day long, but no one will listen to me. They will listen to you. And she took a deep breath as well. And she said, okay, I'll do it. And she did it. And uh, I, I think it made the airwaves. Oh yeah. Made the airwaves. Um and the BBC website and, you know, and, and people did take notice because Chris Everett said it. And I seem to remember last year's Manic Monday schedule was more gender balanced than it had been in a long time. Are, oh, yeah. are you trying to say that my hour and a half... That's exactly what I'm saying. Waiting outside the ESPN makeup room. Every time the door opening, me thinking, is that, is seeing a peak of blonde hair, is is that Chris Everett? No. Okay. (laughs) It was all worth it. Yes. Well, it all contributes to the conversation, doesn't it? And as you say, she gets heard because, Mm. and I I also think she gets heard because she isn't somebody who's always um, talking. And that, and, her presence has grown, I think, in the last few years since she's been back on ESPN and back wanting to be part of the conversation because she admitted to you um, as part of the, the interview you did, she she went for a period of just being very relaxed when her when her, her boys were, were growing up and she was quite happy to just, just stay out of stay out of the way really and just live a, a, a calm and more relaxing life. And in, in more recent years she is wanted to be part of it all again. And I think she's, I mean, she, she she talked a lot there and gave such an insight into sort of her process of finding a sense of self. And I think a lot of that involves finding, finding your, your voice. And for her, that's been all tied up with this, this bizarre misconception that, that people have, have had of her over the years, this, this role that she she had to play, which as she said there in her own words, was a lie. But you know, she she was playing the role of the ice princess or the girl next door or whatever sort of incarnation of that that trope um, it was on that day. It was sort of various versions of sweet girl plays plays great tennis, keeps her mouth shut, keeps her head down because because people don't people don't like women to be to be outspoken and and forthright um and have opinions certainly not in the 70s and 80s and perhaps slightly less so now but it's still the case you know martina was able to to circumvent that to a certain extent but that's because nobody wanted to put her in that box everybody wanted to to shove her into a completely different pretty pretty unpleasant box which sort of was was mostly, you know, negative, but um, had, I suppose, the the unintended consequences consequence of, of liberating her to to be outspoken. But that wasn't the case for for Chrissy, um, and that must have been hard because she so clearly has a lot to say, yeah. Um, and yeah, she's finding a way to say it now. But all those years when. She couldn't when she didn't have a voice and felt like she couldn't speak and be herself and had to to conform to to what people expected her to be. That must have been very oppressive. Mm. I think if we go back to the be- beginning of her life and her upbringing a little, just to, to sort of give some context, uh, which she gave in the interview as well. But this from Larry Schwartz from the ESPN archives He's written, she was born in December the 3rd, 
the 21st, 1954, in Fort Lauderdale, raised on the clay of that city's tennis courts where her father, Jimmy, was a teaching pro. When she was around five, her dad began giving her lessons. And while she was still under five feet tall in 1969, she was mentioned in Sports Illustrated's face, Sports Illustrated's Faces in the Crowd for being ranked number one nationally in girls 14 and under tennis. So little thoughts of of what we were talking about with Jennifer Capriati uh, uh, last week during Roland Garros and maybe not as not quite as on the cover but the the similar very very early results she she was reaching the semi-finals of the US Open before she officially turned pro um and she said I was very very shy as a younger girl just petrified of people and tennis helped give me an identity and made me feel like somebody so really I think that that's one of the things that comes across loud and clear in all the reading and all and the interview as well is that by becoming a tennis player that young and being that channeled into the sport trying to have both that and what anybody would call a normal upbringing if if such a thing exists or having a discovery of yourself as a human being outside of the tennis court is nigh on impossible it sounds if you if you're at that sort of sharp end of the sport yeah i think this is probably where martina navratilova is such a massive outlier because her pursuit of tennis forced her to grow up in a way she had to abandon her home country she had to learn a new language she had to go and live in a different society she had to figure out who she was to pursue tennis whereas it sounds to me like for chris everett pursuing tennis in a way kind of suppressed that growth and that development of her as a as a person and what brought her success on the court maybe caused her problems in later life because she wasn't able to kind of develop so I think but I think that's more the norm I think Martina Navratilova's story is is the unusual one and there are probably lots of people out there like Chris Evert who whose pursuit of tennis stagnates the rest of their life in a way and it can be quite challenging to deal with that while you're playing but also when you finished you've got a lot of you've got a lot of figuring out to do it sounded like she had mm. yeah she in a in an interview with um sports illustrated a, a while back she was she was asked about um her parents um and and the parenting she experienced and and she was asked Oh, a pretty bald question, really. Do you think Do you think your parents did it right? And she said, they did it right to produce a champion. I don't know if they did it right to develop a person. And I don't think she said that with any, I don't get the impression having spoken to her that she would have said that with any, with any resentment of, oh, I, I wish they'd done it differently. You know, she's just, she's just very aware of that trade-off. Um, and goodness me, studying some of the stories that, that we've been able to study over the past week that the past few weeks that that trade-off is something that just keeps coming up isn't it keeps coming up with so many of the the human stories in tennis mm. her 18th birthday in 1972 is she is around about when she turned pro she won her first two grand slams the french open and wimbledon in 74 at the same time she was engaged for a while to jimmy connors and that was creating a lot of headlines it says here in this piece in the espn archives that the relationship became strained and they they called off the wedding that they'd they'd had planned and, it, and i mean I, I found it really fascinating when when she was talking to you and volunteered that that her relationship with John Lloyd, her meeting John Lloyd, became a factor in that 1978 Wimbledon. Yeah, she that was cheeky. She knew she was catching me off guard <laughs> there. And she really, she really did. Um, yeah, and I, every time I've listened to that interview back, um, I've, I've been annoyed that I, I didn't follow up that, that whole rich theme of conversation by putting to her the question that that Mary Carrillo put to Simona Halep in her pre-French Open press conference last year, which is, are you too happy? Is there such a thing as being too happy to be at the sharp end of tennis and to be winning 
major titles. Um, I don't want to put words in Chris Evert's mouth because I didn't ask that question. I'm annoyed about it, but certainly I got the impression that that year at Wimbledon, from what she was saying, the answer then was she was too happy um, on that particular occasion. And yeah, I loved her. I loved her honesty about that. And subsequently reading about, I mean, she's been incredibly open about all the major relationships in her life. Hasn't, hasn't she? You found an interview in, in Elle magazine, David, from about nine years ago, I think, 2011. Yeah, I'm a regular I, reader. I love the idea of David going through the Elle magazine archives. <laughs> I woke archives up this morning to lockdown. A, a link from David to Elle magazine. Um, yeah, well, she talked about the the breakdown of her her three marriages. Just, just not just about the breakdown about the the, the successes within them as as well, um, but so frankly and so interestingly, and and relating that to her her struggle for a sense of self and struggle for. For validation, she was looking for validation throughout her life in in a man, in an in another person, and I mean, yeah, she talks about going through the going through the therapy process, and she seems to be a fantastic advert for therapy to me because it's a level of self reflection which is pretty rare, I think, in tennis players. Pretty, even I mean, they they tend to it tends to improve with with retirement and time but still i think she's leaps and bounds ahead of ahead of most of them in the in the self-reflection stakes and actually there's a there's a moment in your interview where you say do you have any regrets and there's a pause where she's trying to establish whether you mean any regrets in life or in my career because <laughs> yeah. no in my career i feel absolutely you know the gist is i mean look i did all right in my career um and and look she's she's had she's had, speaks with such warmth about parenthood and 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 how much she's she would she wouldn't change that for anything and that was the best moment in her life um but yeah it seems that here she is now in her 60s and the other one she kept saying to you was i'm really honest now i'm in my 60s <laughs> and um because I can be, because I I understand now where where life is and and what I must have gone through in order to be what I am now. And yeah, the it's it's resulted in one of the most decorated tennis careers, sporting careers in history. And she did it throughout an era with and with records that just don't seem don't seem real when you start to go through them. And, and I mentioned how. There was that period where she was together with Jimmy Connors and then she met John Lloyd. But we're missing out the fact that she she spent basically the next five-year period as world number one. She was she – was, what was the unbeaten run that she had on clay? I mean, it was it was 120-odd matches. Yeah, which was a, an, another great moment in the interview when you put all, all the stats to her and, <laughs> and she said, uh, how about 125 matches winning on clay? That's a pretty good one. Yeah, I felt like <laughs> I mean, saying it wasn't an exhaustive list, Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was from that was from August 1973 to May 1979, 125 match winning streak. Um just just incredible only eight of those matches were three sets um so so many of them straight sets you put in the interview how many were six love sets just just she liked that, that didn't she matt she did like you, that yeah, yeah. How, well many, done. how many was it uh 71 of the 258 sets which works out as uh 28 <laughs> percent which is absurd <laughs> which is ridiculous of six loves <laughs> Uh, and Tracy Austin eventually ended the run. Mm. And Chris Everett, as we've talked about, was kind of the first teenage star, I suppose, in the professional game. And But but people, th I think, would think of Tracy Austin as being the first. So there's an interesting sort of parallel between those two careers and how Everett obviously went on to have a much more successful career. But Tracy Austin at that time, people maybe thought was going to be the next Chris Everett. She has the highest win percentage in the open era and that is a record that still stands she retired in in 1989 and that record i believe across men's and women's is that right mm -hmm. matt it still That's stands right. 
Yeah, it is ninety uh, percent. One thousand three hundred and nine wins, one hundred and forty six losses, and of those one hundred and forty six losses, forty three of them were against one player, <laughs> Martina Navratilova. So Martina accounted for about thirty percent of her career losses. So take Martina away. Oh my and goodness! Golly, <laughs> this is this is where I feel like we, as a, a media and people within the sport have have just not got this right over the years that when these staggering records being accumulated by Nadal, Federer and Djokovic and Serena Williams have been achieved you never hear and by the way Chris Evert did this you never hear that and and that that bothers me because the one that was always getting quoted was Federer's record of 23 consecutive semi-final appearances at Grand Slams, which is breathtaking. I'm not trying to suggest that it isn't, but it still isn't what Chris Evert managed to to achieve, who who reached um, 34 Grand Slam singles finals in total um, and 52 semi-finals. She only played in 56 Grand Slams altogether and and she reached 52 semi-finals. (laughs) There's only four events that she didn't manage to get to the semis. I only discovered that stat this year. I I, I remember it was during the Australian Open, and I don't know why I was looking at Chris Everett's stats, (laughs) but I was. And I came across it, and I sort of triple, quadruple checked it because I thought that cannot be true. I did the same because I I thought... Well, if that were true, we'd all be talking about it Mm. all the time. But unless it's the specific... S- record or stat that a a person of prominence is chasing you don't hear about it how we just margaret court is being talked about all the time because that one record is what serena williams is chasing and i understand why that is and i also realize that we are completely guilty of that but it it is wonky isn't it it's 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 not quite right it's it's because arguably a lot of those records that we've we've read out for for Chris Evert are when you drill down into them as significant if if not possibly more so than than those twenty four Grand Slam titles certainly worthy of of being yeah. mentioned as much and I think that was a very important point Chris Evert made in the interview when she talks about how goat discussion revolves purely basically around grand slams and how when you look at chris everts career you see how reductive that is because there's so much more to it she along with martina and billy jean she built the wta tour and everything that went into that was obviously going to have an impact on her grand slam total and she's got so many other records besides the Grand Slams, which need to come into a conversation when you're talking about greatest of all time, best of all time, whatever you want to say. And they built that tour. Uh, obviously, sort of it, the charge was led by Billie Jean King, but the mantle ex- very much picked up by by Chrissy and, and Martina. They built that tour because they felt a sense of responsibility to do that. And David, I think you found um, an interview that they both did together on the BT Sport coverage of um, the tour finals in Singapore a few years ago, where they were were both out there, um, and they were they were talking about just that building what was then the the Vi- Virginia Slims tour and and going to events week in week out and knowing that if they didn't go to them, those those events lost out so much in terms of coverage and prominence and deciding their schedule together yeah. so mm. that they covered as many events between them not going to the same ones but just sustaining those tournaments with their star power exactly and and although um there was there was no no desire from from Chrissy in that interview I felt to 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 throw current players under the bus or to disparage them in any way I did get the sense that while she she wasn't looking to be critical of it, she would probably agree that that sense of responsibility is not really there now. It's very much a more individ- individualistic pursuit at the top of tennis. And, and she would say and did say, well, we had Billie Jean King as our mentor and that changes everything. You know, what what better role model could you possibly have? But 
Billie Jean King is still out there as a mentor. She's still as vocal as she ever was. She is still available to mentor these young players and that should be being utilised just because she's a few years older than she was back when she was mentoring Chrissy and Martina. She's no less relevant. If anything, she's she's more relevant now, which is, you know, extraordinary that she's kept herself that relevant. But it, it is such a shame to me that, that that sense of responsibility has has been lost, that somebody like Billie Jean King is, isn't being called upon in some sort of official capacity by the by the WTA to to educate players in the the history of the game, the the context in which they're all playing the sport and earning the money that they are. It just seems like such a, 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 a an open goal would, being missed. She would jump at it. Oh. She would jump at it. And and actually, it was quite clear from the interview, so would Chrissy Evans. Absolutely. She doesn't, she doesn't want to impose herself. She was very clear about that. I also think she feels that if if there is a, a, a request for it, it should come from the players themselves rather than ha- uh, having to put it on them. But uh, but that really struck me. And I, and whenever I've seen, I, I saw that one Instagram live she did with Tom Lianovic and um, Berrettini. And it slightly wound me up how how the she she's so generous with these these young players she's so sort of backing them bigging them up she does it on twitter as well i've noticed she really supports players she really tries to give them a boost and yet when you look at what they've achieved relative to what she's achieved it's i mean it, it's very generous of her really because because they've done next to nothing compared to what she's done um and i would i do feel like it's it's something that could be utilised more. Her ex, her life experiences, her tennis experiences, and uh, and as you say, an, an education. Um, because I love the fact that she's got that total sense of responsibility about what what was required for the game to prosper. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. I just got to read out another stat here from your notes, Matt. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, I've just been staring at this one for a while, and I haven't. Nobody said it yet. She won the 1976 US oh, Open yeah. for the loss of just 12 games in the whole tournament. <laughs> <laughs> she won 72 games and lost 12. I mean, assu- assu- assuming she won seven matches, it that's was six. 14. It was okay, six matches. So she's lost one game per set on the way to the title. 
on average. I mean, I mean, where did you feel unbeatable? I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was six one six love six love six love six one six love six one six two six three six one six three six love. That was her nineteen seventy six U.S. Open. Who got the three game sets? Uh, that was Yvonne Gulagong in the final, and Mima Yalsevec in the semi-finals. Yes, who she beat in uh, one of her French Open finals, didn't she? I think her most one-sided French Open final. She beat me. She very helpfully, when she referenced that uh, when we were working together at the French Open last year, um, just called her Mima, which <laughs> which got me off the hook because I'd been I'd been rehearsing how to say her name and I couldn't find anybody that could confirm confirm that I was getting it right. So I I anyway Mima. And that was a US Open played on clay. And she's obviously best known for her record at the French Open. That is probably where her name comes up most often, the fact that she's won the seven titles there. But what what doesn't get talked about is she missed six French Opens to play world team tennis. So think how many she might have if she wasn't doing that. There's all When you delve into it, these records actually get more extraordinary. I'd love to hear more about that because, I mean, Billie Jean King started World Team Tennis. She's always been its biggest advocate. And it obviously clearly was a huge deal back then, less so now. It's still going. Um, but I'd love to know what the thinking was there you know why why would you not play the french open when you are the dominant player back then i mean obviously i guess it didn't have quite the same importance as it does now um or for a while or team ten, you know that that's something i'd i'd love to find out um, were those in the had had martina emerged as a rival at that point in those years that she she skipped the french open matt well there was two at the start which Perhaps maybe Martina wasn't a rival then, sort of 71, 72. But then 76, 77, 78, she skipped, um, which was around the time that Martina was developing. Maybe Chris Everett was still dominating their rivalry in that stage, but Martina was a force. And as as she mentioned in that interview with you, she knew Martina was going to be good before Martina started beating her. You know, she was aware of this was a threat coming. Um, but yes, but certainly the end of her career, she played the French Open a lot more um, and obviously still had a tremendous amount of success there. That that never stopped. I mean, she had success everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she didn't really play the Australian Open that much. No. Obviously, back in the, this was very much back in the day where the Australian Open didn't have the same status or prestige mm. as the other slams. So she only played it one, two, three, four, five, six times in her in her career uh, and won it twice. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt's, Matt's just got a section here on uh, page four, some Chris <laughs> Evert quotes, and they're just so good. I just kind of want to read them out, um, uh, <laughs> including... Losses are always a relief. They take a great burden off me. Make me—I mean, she didn't have many of them. Uh, make <laughs> me feel more normal. If I win several tournaments in a row, I get so confident I'm in a cloud. If I lose, I go back to the dressing room and I'm no better or worse than anyone else. A loss gets me eager again. I love the mentality. Yeah, I mean that is the the mentality of a, a sort of superior competitive being to to mere mortals isn't it i mean i i can't really i can't really relate to that at all there's also another quote further further down she says on john Lo on john lloyd the biggest difference between me and john is that i'm a competitor and he's not <laughs> <laughs> i love that quote i mean yeah. you know he was still a professional athlete but by her standards you know she was and, the and ultimate he, he competitor admit, he he would admit that i mean he was he was a sort of he wanted to win and he he had a good career but i think the the impression for, for me as a kid and the the reading and the speaking to people that i've done is that john lloyd was a really really talented player who who perhaps could have achieved more um if he'd have had a, a slightly different 
outlook and mindset as a, as a player back then. Maybe he was too happy. Maybe. Yeah, he always seems pretty happy. <laughs> he <laughs> he's, does, he's a lovely he? bloke. <laughs> we 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 know him quite well in uh, sort of latter years. But um, oh, it would have been so interesting to be around back then, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> would have been. Yeah. I mean, my my childhood watching Chris Everts was mainly taken from early eighties Wimbledon, where really. I mean, the, the, there's an, there's an interesting dissection of her of her runs in the rivalry between her and Navratilova, and to me, it was always Navratilova was was the superior player. But that was because I only got to see Wimbledon, and she dominated the Wimbledon rivalry. Um, and when you actually then go back and look at the the swings within the rivalry. Between 73 and 77, it was all Everett, 21 4 lost. Um, between 78 and 82, Navratilova started to just about edge it, but it was still close. And then 82 to 85, it was Navratilova, 15 wins, one defeat. Now, that is the period that I would really remember having started to watch tennis, and that's how it felt whenever they would play. People used to talk very positively about Chris Everett as being a great champion, but it was always there was always a little bit of not past tense, but she was playing second fiddle to Navratilova. Is is how it was coming across through the British TV and media airwaves. And actually, the the most interesting development of all of them for me is that between eighty five and eighty eight she managed to get some wins again. And it was 10-6 Navratilova. But we, we talked about the French Open couple in a row, 85 and 86, that Everts won. And we watched one of them during Roland Garros relived. And I, I, I know that Clay was more suited to her. And we've, we've talked about her incredible record. But it also shows that that appetite she had for the sport, that she had a long career. And particularly by the standards of players back then, um, and just kept coming back for more. And I don't think that, given her public image, the way she was portrayed in the media, I don't think people really appreciated what a what a grinding competitor she was. That she, I mean, uh, even take an individual rally as an example, but that then is shown throughout her mm. entire career that she just doesn't go away, keeps going. And yet I think the fact that, I think I said this maybe in our Roland Garros pod, the fact that she went back and didn't completely reinvent herself as a tennis player, but made adjustments to improve, to be able to live with Martina Navratilova through that fourth period of their of their rivalries you've described, is, is an in- incredible uh, achievement in her career because she could have thought, oh, I'm Chris Ever. I've I've done it all. I've already won this. I don't need I don't need it anymore. I can pack it up. But no, she she wanted to get back on an even keel with Navratilova and continue that incredible rivalry. Um, and that point you make about her grit and her determination, I've always felt that when whenever I've watched highlights of Chris Ever, I've never. This is going to sound like a terrible thing to say, but you, it's never that impressive because it doesn't actually show you what made her so good just looking at highlights. You have to watch whole matches and look at her whole career mm. to realise what she was doing out there, that relentlessness, that concentration, that intensity on every point, her attitude. That was that was what made her so good. Obviously, she had this baseline game that people didn't have initially and she brought that into the sport, but really it was... It was an attitude thing. There was an incredible quote from, well, article on um, Sports Illustrated after she was named the Sports Woman of the Year in 1976. And the question really was, what makes her so great? It was, it was the same question that we're grappling with now. And players were asked to rate the different elements of a player. Who's got the best forehand? And they said it was Marita Redondo. Who's got the best backhand? Yvonne Goulagong. Who's got the best volleys? Martina. Who's got the best serve? Virginia Wade. Who's got the best smash? Rosie Casals. But who's the best player? Chris Everett. And so it's kind of like, well, what made her the best player? And the answer is that, and I'm quoting Sports Illustrated here, 
There are players who are stronger than ever and more and more naturally talented athletes than ever and more explosive volleyers. But whatever has more of what makes her a champion who each year moves farther and farther beyond the reach of more mortal tennis players is grit. She has true grit, character, mental tenacity. She's a clear thinker in a thoughtful game and she never gives up. So while others are playing tennis, Everett has an unfair advantage by resorting to another game, some sort of mystical hybrid made up of one part backhand to nine parts concentration. And it's it's that. It's it's kind of... Un- it's difficult to define and it's difficult to go back and pinpoint through highlights and through footage that's you know as we've seen there isn't such a great archive but i'm sure that when you were living through that period it was so obvious what made her so great it just doesn't translate as easily nowadays because martina's strength was something that was completely visible on the outside exactly. it was a it was a physical strength and th- this is a, a a quote that i think i mentioned during that 85 uh, french open we lived pod but Chris said once that I'm sure she said it a few times that that people would come up to her and say, "Oh, I I don't I don't I, I don't like that Martina. She's too tough. She's too she's too strong." And she would she would laugh and say, "I'm the tough I'm the tough one. I'm the hard one. Martina's Martina's a pussycat." You I mean talk about judging a book by its cover. She would, and Navratilova said, "Evert was the marshmallow with a hard center inside." And I was the opposite. Um, mm. But, you know, we we are a sort of appearance-led world, aren't we? And, um, you know, particularly when talking about women's sport. Mm. And um, I, I actually think even if, if you fast forward to the current day, one, one of the things that I've and I, I don't know Chris Everett at all. I, I've interviewed her a couple of times, but personally, I, I only know her through you, Catherine. But when you work with her, the warmth she ha- has shown you, given that, you know, you, you've not been around very long in in those circles. And I mean, I think I think a lot of it is because of, of the good job you do, how professionally you are and how good you are at it. But at the same time, she she shows new people that the open arms really and and i think it's it's great because it's not always like that with people who've done what she's done um and you know i i've just i'm really just impressed by her as a, as a person yeah me too because she's not she's intimidating you know i find her intimidating she's she's not one of those people that you know or you know they could be anyone you can't you know Mats Verlander walks into a room and you know he could be he could be the bloke next door you know she's not like that she has she has a real aura you you know when she's walked into a room but she also has this this as you say this real this real warmth and a thirst for knowledge as well and 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 an interest in in people and what's going on around her and one of the things i find most magnetic about her actually is her her willingness to admit mistakes and to admit fault that is something mm. that well first of all isn't necessarily easy for 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 people that have achieved what she's achieved people you know with i'm sure big egos etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm sure that's that's a very difficult sort of state of mind to to come to but also it, i don't know for me it feels like something that's going out of fashion these days being willing to admit fault look at you know governments and leaders around the world you know, everyone's talking about this being a time of learning and listening etc but i don't know people it feels to me like admitting mistakes is is not something that people are particularly prepared or happy to do at the moment i mean even on on twitter recently i've i've been so impressed with her response to to the civil rights movement that's going on in the states and and around the world and just a a, a minor example of of what i've just been saying is she she quote tweeted a statement by Venus Williams about the civil rights protest and she commented um, um, very favorably on it. But um, she she used the word articulate to describe Venus Williams 
Venus Williams' words, um, among other compliments, and she was intending to be entirely complimentary. Um, and um, a few people went back to her and sort of said, I know you mean well, but the use of the word articulate uh, in, in these terms is 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 perhaps not not quite right and actually somebody tweeted her with the link to an article all about you know various various bits of language um which have racial connotations that white people might not necessarily appreciate and it focused on the 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 use of the word articulate by white people to describe black people and why that's problematic and it it doesn't make white people that have used that i've probably done that in the past i'm sure i have doesn't make you a raging racist it's just part of the learning about you know these systemic issues that that we're all talking about at the moment and supposed to be learning about anyway and she she very gracefully responded to that and said i've read it and that's noted Thank you. I get it now. I get it now. She said. Yeah. And and I I agree with you. I was sort of thinking so many people right there would just dig their heels Mm -hmm. in and assume being right. Um, And instead she's gone and and, and looked it up. Or be defensive and just say, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. And, you know, what the article is saying is it doesn't doesn't matter how you intended it. Well, um, Tamani Kariel tweeted a, a, a passage that, Chrissy Everett had written recently on Instagram uh, about this and I was just so taken by it she said I've been reflecting on our country's current events which started with the brutal savage murder of George Floyd along with tremendous sadness and anger it made me feel shame feel guilty and entitled but words are cheap I want so much to help but I have no idea what to do except throw my glove into the ring so I'm committed to doing just that one I am reading up on black history and she she lists all the publications that she intends to read and the people she intends to read about in order to to properly educate herself and she says two i'm doing a gut check i'm examining my conscience and checking if there are any underlying residual feelings of prejudice that were indoctrinated into my beliefs at a young age there was an overwhelming amount of fear and discrimination in the 50s and 60s and it is necessary to evaluate evaluate how i was personally blinded this is good what is happening, the demonstrations, the protests, the screaming, the tensions, the pressure, and I hope it wakes up this country. And I just thought, again, it would be so easy for Chrissy Everett to just sit back, put a, a, a gesture of, a, of a, a black square where her social media posts would normally be and join the crowd and that's i'm not trying to criticize those that do that not everybody does know what to do i understand that but the fact that she is determined to find out and to to, to self-examine i just i love it really i i just think she's a hugely impressive person um and it's been really something to kind of get to know her career and and uh, and, and you were talking about matt's you know she's not a highlight real player but when you go back and you actually examine the times and watch the matches, you get used to the pace of the shots. She makes that joke, doesn't she, Catherine, with you when you say that you were going to go and watch <laughs> the matches again. She says, what, are you going to have to speed it up? <laughs> and and we, we all laughed at that. But when you go back and you watch her matches, that ends up becoming irrelevant because your eyes adjust to the pace. You under, You start to feel the time in which those shots were being played and you start to see what it is she's doing to her opponents um and it's just been it's been a real silver lining to this period of of no tennis for me to discover properly people like chrissy evan yeah and just get, just going back to to what you said about her 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 brilliant words there um about the uh the civil rights protests it it reminded me of uh, of a quote from martina that that Mac, matt dug up which was um, her saying uh, a while back, even before it was okay to be gay-friendly, Chris was gay-friendly. I appreciated that so much and never forgot it. Um, and, you know, there are many sort of touching elements about about their rivalry, their their friendship, their relationship. But, you know, that's such a... That's such a, a significant founding of it all isn't it you can you can only imagine 
the the landscape that Martina would have had to face when she came out publicly as gay in the early 80s. I think she was the first tennis player to to do it. And just think about the fact that that was probably about 35 years ago and no male player has come out in that time. It's extraordinary. Um, so, so to think that she had the support in the form of probably the the person on tour that she she respected the most is a really cockle warming cockle warming thought <laughs> indeed indeed anything else folks before we sign off for another episode yeah i mean about 17 other pages <laughs> <laughs> Should we just post the pages? Yeah. Forget the podcast. It deserves to be published. <laughs> um, they're highlighted for ease of ease of navigation. They are. How long did it take you, Matt? Long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. I think it was a couple of days worth of work. I know we were. You know the way these interviews work. You never quite know when they're going to be, and I think you'd you'd pinpointed that. It would be sometime next week, but I was panicking that what if Chris Everett said, All right, I'm ready to go. We needed <laughs> you know, we needed some preparation. So um, We've taught him well. Speak, haven't we? Speaking of preparation, at the time of that interview I um I washed and dried my hair, which is not necessarily a sequence of events which is happening that often. Um I I put makeup on, I put a dress on. That sequence of events it definitely hasn't happened in the past three months. Um because Chris had really wanted to, to to do the interview on FaceTime so we could see one another. And I thought, if if that's what she wants, that's what she's going to get. Um, but I'll be darned if she sees my, my makeup-free face. Uh, and uh, sat down, pleased with myself, uh, that I looked vaguely respectable. Uh, and there she was in gym gear, looking completely fabulous. Um, and uh, sort of one of the first things she said to me was, oh, I think everyone looks better without makeup. <laughs> 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 which is a really great sentiment and one that I sort of generally agree with except don't apply to my don't apply to myself certainly not on that day I didn't um but yeah it was all it was all all that prep for nothing unlike <laughs> yours you, Matt <laughs> have you um unpacked the suitcase yet? no no yeah. I have not okay because I've now got visions of it being in a, in a museum somewhere, courtesy of Mary, and I don't want to deny the world a work of performance art, not performance art, something, something else art, <laughs> tennis art. Can, can I also just let everybody know what Catherine calls Matt's notes uh, when he prepares them for her for a big interview or a day of broadcasting? She says, it's like he's given me a superpower, mm. which which I love. Yeah. I love that too. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. That's a guaranteed way to to get some more. <laughs> it's like um it's like playing a computer game with the cheat codes. Oh, it gets better. You know when you, you used to play Mortal Kombat mm -hmm. um no. with unlimited light <laughs> and somebody, you know, a, a friend of a friend told your brother about the uh the code you could type in to get unlimited Unlimited lives. I don't think they had Mortal Kombat on the ZX uh, Spectrum what? in, in 1982. Or on, or on the Commodore Amiga. Or on the Atari ST. Oh, my or God. I can keep going. In fact, there was even a computer called the BBC, which was just... Um, it, it, the most exciting bit about it was a keyboard that had all, one red key on it, and I never knew what that one did. And it was the only one that was red. The, anyway. the ejector seat. Did you not even? <laughs> did you not even have a SNES? I did press it, but a what? A, what? a SNES. What's that? Super Nintendo. No. 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 What do they have these days? Matt's too young for a SNES, and you're too old for mm. a SNES. Right. What did you have, Matt? Uh, I had an Xbox. Oh. oh. They still have those now. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's not. Well, they still have fit. Nintendo's now. I think it's Nintendo Switch, mm -hmm. which actually is a sort of a step in the retro direction. When I, I was believe. a kid, they actually had to load the games on a cassette, and it would take at least half an hour until you could play the game from having started the computer up. <laughs> 
Right. Are you older than I thought I... you were, David, and you've been <laughs> this lying this is... about your age. This sounds prehistoric. <laughs> Not how I envisaged ending the Chris Everett story, but there we go. Um, I thought I'd just give you a bit of personal retro uh, action. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, m- mission accomplished, David. Yeah, yeah. So, look, we don't really know when we're going to be next on the tennis podcast. It could be tomorrow because uh, events are happening within the sport. Lots is uh, lots being discussed about when tennis will return at Grand Slam level. As soon as we do get more info on that, we will come back to you with another edition of the Tennis Podcast. What we do know for sure is we'll be back next week with some of our memories of one of the tournaments closest to our heart, the Fever Tree Championships at the Queen's Club, which was due to take place this coming week, but which, of course, like Wimbledon, is not taking place because of the coronavirus. And then we will be back in a couple of weeks' time with daily editions of Wimbledon Relived. We've chosen our matches. We can't wait to get started. Matt's preparing our superpowers. We're preparing the archive footage to watch. And we'll be back with you again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.